A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. Hey, this is Chris Kimball, and I need your help. We're working on a story about the battles we all have in our home kitchens. Maybe you're tired of your partner telling you how to cook, or maybe they always leave a mess, or maybe you're frustrated by your loved one's highly restrictive diet. We want to hear about your kitchen dramas, from the biggest food fights to your everyday grievances. You can leave us a voicemail at 617-249-3167, 617-249-3167, or send a voice memo to Radio tips at 177milkstreet.com. One more time, call us at 617-249-3167 or email us a voice memo at radiotips at 177milkstreet.com. Please include your name and where you're calling from, and thank you. This is Most Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Today I'm chatting with caterer to the stars, Mary Giuliani. Over the last 15 years, she's become the hot caterer for the worlds of art, fashion, and entertainment. But growing up, she had different ambitions. She dreamed of being a famous actress and of being Jewish. Well, we were so Italian. We couldn't have been more Italian if we tried. But I grew up in a predominantly Jewish neighborhood. So all I really wanted to be was like my friends. I wanted to be Jewish. So yes, I went to Hebrew school electively. I gave myself my very own um, bat mitzvah in my house by myself. (laughs) And I applied to the Shabbos Goy program to push the elevators for the Orthodox Jews at the hospital on Saturdays. (laughs) Also coming up, we dig into Super Pistou from Provence and explain how to make your pasta water starchier. But first, reporter Otis Gray recounts his trip to a senior citizen lunch in Burlington, Vermont, that brings together Bhutanese refugees and New England old-timers. The lunch is hosted by a program called New Farms for New Americans. Otis, how are you? I'm fantastic. You know, Vermont's an interesting place, uh, but I don't think of it sort of on the cutting edge of other cultures, different foods. But New Farms for New Americans is quite the opposite. That's true. The concept for New Farms for New Americans is there are refugees that are getting resettled into Vermont. So New Farms for New Americans, it's a group that helps all these people coming into the state logistically get farmland and learn how to use our soil to grow their indigenous crops on Vermont ground. So there's, uh, I think, about six to seven different ethnicities that are within the group, but primarily Bhutanese. So you went up 
to a Bhutanese senior lunch. Uh, first of all, what is a Bhutanese senior lunch? Why were you there and what was it like? So the Bhutanese senior lunch, um, there is a senior center in Burlington that caters to both immigrants and native Vermonters. They were having these lunches every Wednesday. All the seniors could come by and get a really nice discounted lunch and there's games. And a lot of the folks that were going to these were Bhutanese. But um, Alicia Laramie, who is the coordinator at New Farms for New Americans, she was saying that the Bhutanese seniors weren't really liking the food that was being served. So at first, the you know, as the senior center was wanting to recruit new Americans, they were offering only food that wasn't very appealing to the Bhutanese seniors. So the food is is overcooked pork roast, mashed potatoes, cello salad. What you think would be served at an American right. senior senior lunch? Yeah. So uh, Alicia thought. We have this amazing cook in our ranks who was uh, a refugee that came in in 2013, and her name's Dolly Munger, and they said, why don't we have her start cooking for the senior lunches? So tell me a little bit about Dolly. Dolly is, uh, she's about 4'10", and you'll never see her without a smile on her face, Um, but she was just moving around this uh, kitchen like she owned the place. And there were a lot of other people in the kitchen using it, and there was definitely a kind of respect for her. Um, she's very generous. She was she was very happy to make me try everything that she was cooking. Sarah, try. This is ready to go here. Ready to go in the belly. It's ready to go in the belly. Yeah. <laughs> so the refugees who come to Vermont, they, they come because in their home country, there's violence. Uh, they fear for their lives. Is that why? Yep. Some of them, they do. And a lot of it is religious persecution and ethnic persecution. The national religion of Bhutan is Buddhism. And there are little sects of Christianity throughout the country, but they aren't really accepted by the government. And some have been forced to leave over the last 20, 30 years. So people like Dali, she fled Bhutan. So in Nepal, I spent a refugee life for 22, 23 years. So that uh, life was, um, you know, we have to survive. Depends on other people, other NGOs or something like that. 23 years? 23 years. And the average that people uh, spend in these refugee camps who have fled Bhutan was 18 years, which was really shocking to hear. So Dolly was actually doing a lot of cooking in these refugee camps. Um, She was just kind of known as a really great cook. So when she came here in 2013, a couple years later when, you know, Alicia Laramie saw that a lot of the Bhutanese seniors weren't loving the food that was being served. They brought her on board. So could you just describe the, the fundamental flavor profile of Bhutanese food, which I assume would be slightly different than, than Vermont fare? Incredibly different. There's a lot of bitter foods. Bitter eggplant, bitter melon is a right. really big part of the cuisine. Which is very bitter. Very bitter. Um, Dolly had me try a bitter melon curry, and it was... So, so delicious. Um, this uh, taste is uh, bitter. That's why we call bitter melon. So if you, if you have a 
like um, behavior problem, angry, in, and then pressure is so high. People in our community tell us, take bitter villain, make him calm down. The other big part of their profile is they love their spice. And I mean hot, hot, spicy food. One funny part was Dolly, she was kind of holding some chilies to me, asking me if I like spicy. I was like, yeah, I like spicy. And she she put a couple out for me, these, these long, uh, thin green chilies. And she kind of nodded, you know, like, is that enough for you? And I asked, well, how many would you have? I don't know. Uh, ten. Ten? <laughs> so I can only handle three? Yeah, it's a three quarter. Okay, yeah, do, then we can do three. I trust you. I trust you. Three, three, good. I can handle it. Hot. There's something kind of charming about that phrase, the Bhutanese senior lunch. Right? It's I mean, a great that, that could be a Hollywood movie or something, isn't it, right? Every Wednesday in Vermont. So do, do, the two groups, the, the local Vermonters and the Bhutanese, do they sit apart? Do they sit together? Do they get along? I would say there's definitely a divide, but they get along really great. And here's what Alicia told me. It's awesome because you go up there and you've got Bhutanese seniors playing cards with seniors who are from Vermont and nobody can talk to each other, but they know how to play cards and gamble a little bit. <laughs> the universal language, food and poker? Yeah, I guess so. So there is a lot of cross-pollination between uh, the Vermonters and the Bhutanese and kind of the experimenting with the food. Uh, there was one lady named Martha Allman. She was an older woman, and she absolutely loved the Bhutanese food. Um, that being said, she was very aware that a lot of other Vermonters would not like it as much. I think it's much too spicy for them, and they don't eat it because they're not. Americans, you need eat meat and potatoes. I don't know why they haven't branched out into spices. And then I talked to uh, a gentleman named Iram, and he spent 22 years in a refugee camp in Nepal before coming here. And he'll say, the weather's tough. Yes, every time I miss Bhutan because um, the weather was really nice there. Um, everything was really nice, so we didn't have to go for a doctor visit. And then, yeah, I miss every time. You know, this story of 280 refugees coming to northwest Vermont, uh, trying to grow the food from their homeland, recreating the cuisine from their homeland, uh, the people, the culture, the language are different. Do, do you get a sense that this is just a very difficult experience or are you more hopeful? I wouldn't say that it's just, it's not an easy thing that they're doing. They spent a long time in uh, a place that they couldn't call home and now they're in a completely foreign environment. That being said, they do have this really little community here and there's something to be said for that. Otis, thank you very much. Thank you. That was reporter Otis Gray. It's time to answer a few of your culinary questions with my co-host, Sarah Moulton. Sarah is, of course, the author of Home Cooking 101 and the star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on public television. Sarah, are you ready? I am so ready, Chris. Welcome to Milk Street. Who do we have on the line? Hi, my name is Sue. I live in North Carolina. Well, hello. How can we help you today? 
I was recently in Barcelona. Oh, And nice. we had this wonderful, wonderful ricotta gelato. And I was trying to recreate that at home. I've had some success, but not quite there yet. Tell us what you loved about this gelato. It's light and not too sweet. The particular flavor that I had was orange chocolate. So it has orange zest and little tiny chocolate bits. Well, we, we actually did a dessert. We did a ricotta orange chocolate tart based on the really? same concept. Yeah, It's sort of yeah. like the stuffing in a canola. Yes. I made yeah. that, you can't uh, eat orange in the chocolate. That's, recently, yeah. and it's excellent. You've already said you've tried it and you like it. How is yours different than the one you had in Barcelona? It's not as orangey and it's not quite as silky. Creamy. Yeah. Do you use an electric ice cream maker when you do it? Yes. Tell us the recipe. I make the ricotta because I don't have good ricotta in the grocery stores here. Impressive. So it's ricotta. Well, I have a steam oven, so it's pretty easy. You steam oven? That's, man, you're serious. This is serious. That's pretty I cool. I don't know. Okay. Anyway, okay, Go keep ahead. going. One and two-thirds cup ricotta, a cup of cream, a cup of milk, two tablespoons of bourbon, and a little touch of salt, and then three ounces of cream cheese. And how much sugar? About a cup. Well, uh-huh. let me ask again about the ice cream maker. Is this one of those makers where you freeze the insert overnight in the freezer, or is this a like a very expensive unit that has the uh, the freezing unit as part of it? No, this is put the antifreeze loaded <laughs> right into the freezer. I've used those, and I've also used the high fully end. high end ones. And I got to tell you, the high end ones make much better ice cream. I think the problem is, oh, do they? Yeah, those less expensive put the sleeve in the freezer overnight. The problem uh-huh. is that they don't stay cold enough when you're making the ice cream, and they just sure. don't seem to work as well. So I, my guess is they're dealing with very expensive ice cream makers, and that's why I'm sure they are. They get colder and they get more paddle action, so the crystals end up being smaller. Now, the only thing you could do is, and Sarah asked you about the sugar, up the sugar by a quarter cup. The more sugar you use, the smoother the ice cream is going to be. You know, here's a trick. Put some of the, the mixture into the ice cream machine and start to freeze it. And then add the uh-huh. rest a few minutes later, and you get oh. a very quick crystallization, which means you get smaller crystals. The other thing is the more alcohol you use, also the smoother the ice cream. But I I would try more sugar. You could try more fat, try more alcohol. All those are things that will give you something smoother. It might make a difference if you could find yourself, source some really good quality candied citrus to put in there because Uh that's what they probably used. And it'll give you a nicer chew. Little chunks of candied citrus in there would be terrific. Right, Chris, don't you think? Yeah, there's a big difference between quality. That's true. Yeah. The machine you have is really part of the problem, though. Yeah. Okay, well, listen, thanks for calling. Thank you. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, my name is Brendan from Fresno, California. How can we help you? All right. Well, it seems like everybody's using cast iron pans and pots, and it seems like it's the new trendy thing. You're talking to Mr. Cast Iron right now. He's right there over there. (laughs) You came to the right place. Okay, good. You know, I've I've always kind of wanted one, but I've always hesitated to pull the trigger just because it seems like so much work to maintain it, to season it. It seems like there's so many rules surrounding it. So my question is, how is that different than just getting an enamel-coated cast iron? Well, the most useful piece of, of 
cookware in my kitchen is enamel cast iron. Le Creuset is a classic brand. There are others out there. You mean Dutch oven? Yeah, the Dutch oven. And I get a seven a quart if you can, not a six quart. It's larger. You know, I do pasta water in it. I do stews, soups. I cook almost everything in it. And it's non-reactive, of course. And they're expensive. They're over 200 bucks, but they're worth buying and will last forever. You should know the enamel coating inside will look dirty over time, but that just means it's got street cred. It's, however, cast iron, a 10 or 12-inch cast iron skillet, which is very inexpensive, 40 bucks, is definitely worth having. And if you're going to do a steak, for example, it really conducts heat very well. It's a little rougher surface, uh, which is also nice for sautéing. I would also use it for lots of other things like heating up and seasoning spices, like whole spices, doing them in that. So it's good for lots of things, especially searing meat over high heat. Yeah, I would say that the thing about regular cast iron is you can sear a steak beautifully in it. It's not the same in the coated. No, it's not. Essentially, it's good to have both. I mean, you really want a Dutch oven anyway. Well, I've cooked. I used to have two cast iron Dutch ovens I used a lot too, but the reactive problem is an issue, vinegar, tomatoes, etc. Right. Uncoated will react with vinegar. There's there's one other pan you might consider, which is a 10-inch carbon steel pan. It's very mm-hmm. smooth. If you know how to season and keep it seasoned properly, it is nonstick. I do scrambled eggs in it all the time. And they cost like 17 bucks or 20 bucks. They're very inexpensive. So a 10-inch carbon steel, I'd add. So a 7-quart enamel Dutch oven, a 10-inch carbon steel, and a 12-inch cast iron skillet. And Chris, do you want to just take Brendan through quickly how you season a cast iron pan? You heat it up, add a tablespoon to oil, run the oil with a paper towels all surface. And then when it starts smoking, take it off the heat, uh, rub the towels again so it really gets in, let it cool down, and repeat that four or five times. Every time you use it, when you're finished with it, heat it up, clean it out, don't use soap uh, or anything abrasive, dry it, heat it up, put a tablespoon of oil in it, rub the oil on the inside, and when it starts to smoke, take it off the heat. If you do that every time you use it, it'll get really nice. It'll really get nice. And anytime you have a problem, you can always take something slightly abrasive. Kosher. What I use is salt. Kosher and, salt. And uh, oil. Heat that up in the pan and then use that to take off any of the uh, rough spots. Clean it out and then heat it up and oil it. Okay. Well, well that makes sense. Yeah. Thank you very much. Yeah, I really pleasure. appreciate it. Okay, yeah. Brendan. Thank take you. Take care. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. This is Milk Street Radio. Sarah and I are ready to solve your greatest culinary mysteries. Just give us a ring, 855-426-9843. One more time slowly, 855-426-9843. Or email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Catherine calling from the mountains of North Carolina. How can we help you? I use my Instant Pot about once a week to make chicken broth. But the question is really about the way the fat behaves when I'm making it in the Instant Pot. When I use organic chicken, I end up with the fat emulsified throughout the broth. But when I use non-organic chicken, when I chill it down, it ends up making that nice layer of fat that you can take off the broth in the end. So I tested it. I used chicken one way and chicken the other way. And it proved my point, but I'm not sure if that was just a, how are it wasn't you, a controlled study. <laughs> how are you cooking the chicken? How long and et cetera? I use chicken drumsticks and I put in two packages of those and I cook it for about 90 minutes on high pressure. 
and then I take it out and just maybe pull off a little bit of the meat and break it up a little bit more, put it back in, maybe add a little bit more liquid and cook it for about another 90 minutes. No, I think it's too long. I, I think an hour under high pressure with a bunch of water, obviously, and the chicken, whatever else you want, that'll make great stock. And if you want to concentrate stock, just you know, strain it out and, and cook and it down on top down. of the stove. But boil you're, you're it cooking it okay. for like three hours, and it may be under pressure that that fat is getting emulsified into the liquid. But an hour would be fine. You don't need to cook it three hours. Here's another question. Do you think that organic chicken is perhaps leaner? Because it might be that the traditional chicken just has more fat. That's actually an excellent point. It's really just the difference of a brand name that's organic versus a brand name that's not. Organic isn't necessarily leaner than non-organic. No, no, not necessarily. I think uh, an hour in a pressure cooker or Instant Pot, whatever you want to call it, is fine. And it makes very good stock. I've done it. I just think that's all you need to do. I don't think you're going to extract that much more flavor after an hour under pressure. But then yeah. if you want to concentrate it even more, just boil, just it, boil down. it down. I think that's, a, that's and also, a good tip right there. Yeah, yeah. keep in mind that when you make a stock, you don't add salt. So what you can do mm-hmm. after you've made it and you've strained it is take a little spoonful out, sprinkle a little salt in it, try that and see how you like it. And it might actually be strong enough and reduced enough. and You might like it right then and there. But if it still tastes sort of weak and boring, then boil it down. You know, the Chinese have a recipe for white-cooked chicken. You take a whole chicken cook it for roughly an hour in simmering water, take it out and use the chicken for salad or whatever you're going to do. And then you have a stock pot full of stock. And that works just fine. And you can throw in some ginger and scallions and other things if you'd like, and you can just simply reduce that down. How do you know that the fat has emulsified? What does that stock look like? Is it very cloudy? Well, like if I fridge it, you know, put it, chill it overnight, I'm expecting the next morning to find a good, you know, quarter inch or so. But does it look any different than the other one in terms of the actual stock part of it, the part that's not the fat? When it hasn't risen to the top, when I take a little scoop of it out and I let it come to room temperature and go back to being liquid, you can tell that it's greasier. It has that mouthfeel where you can kind of feel like you're eating the fat. Mm. I I agree with gelatin. um... Sarah, I think one of the chickens is fattier than the other. Right. And I think mm-hmm. three hours in a pressure cooker somehow emulsifies the fat into the water to the point that it doesn't separate when chilled. That's what I, which is not that's based on any kind of what I science, suspected. but I think that's yeah. what's going on. Yeah. Yeah, I'll try just doing it for less time yeah. and see yeah. if I get as good a broth and still be able to take the fat yeah. out. Yes. So yeah. That makes sense. Good for you. Okay. Well, thank you. Yeah. Thank Our you. pleasure. Okay. Thanks for calling. All yeah. right. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? I'm Peg from Dane, Wisconsin, which is near Madison. Well, hello and welcome. How can we help you today? Well, I make sourdough pancakes. Oh, impressive. And usually when you make pancakes, you stir them just enough to mix the wet and the dry ingredients so you don't develop the gluten too much. Right. But with sourdough pancakes, you really have to stir them a lot when you mix the egg and the milk into the sourdough sponge. So why don't I worry about gluten? Well, I'm not a big sourdough aficionado, but I think I've heard that sourdough doesn't have the same sort of gluten structure, or at least that sponge is regular Yeah, flour. but she's got a starter. That's already a lot of gluten's been developed. But it's relaxed. Let's go back. Let's go back. So when you make your sourdough pancakes and you add in the final ingredients that morning, what are you adding in and how much do you stir it? 
I have a sponge that sits overnight. So in other words, you start with a starter, you add some flour and water to that and let that sit overnight? Yes. Okay. And then you add an and egg. eggs and... An egg and milk and a teaspoon of sugar, a teaspoon of oil. Well, let me ask you a question. How do you like your pancakes? I mean, are they good? Yes, although they're kind of thin. They aren't as big and fluffy like the pancakes that you get at a restaurant. But it have better flavor. Yes. Yeah, it's all about the flavor. First of all, you have a lot of fat, right, in a pancake as opposed to a regular bread, like a European bread. So that's going to change the formula a little bit. And I would think if you did overmix a sourdough pancake, you probably wouldn't get as fluffy as a pancake. Have you tried barely mixing it in at the end? Like with a whisk, but um, do it very slowly? I haven't tried that. The starter itself is fairly thick. Right. So when you mix the egg and the milk in, at first it looks like it's never going right. to get in there. So you have to stir it a fair amount. Yeah. Have you ever made a souffle and you have the base and then you have the leavener and the leavener is really light and the base is really thick. So you lighten the base and then you fold in the rest of the leavener, which the is the beaten white. egg whites. Yeah. yeah. In this yeah. case, maybe you could do the same is lighten the base with some of the liquid and That's then just gently stir in the rest. Just a thought. Oh, yeah. I think Sarah's right. I would give that a shot. Give it a shot and let us know. And I, I would also try just really gently incorporating the final ingredients to see if you get a thicker pancake. One way to do it is to use a whisk with really big, thick tines that have a big whisk and use that to stir the ingredients together. You don't whisk it. And it oh, does a very okay. nice job blending, but just take it easy. That might be a good way to incorporate something thick with something thin. Oh, nice. Yeah. Anyway, good for you. I'm, uh, yeah, I'm impressed. Sourdough pancakes. I want to come to your place and have breakfast. <laughs> Sounds yummy. With, okay. with elderberry syrup. Oh. Elderberries that grow in my yard. Peg, thank you. Give both of those a try. Yes. Thanks. I love yeah. your podcast. Thank you. Take care. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. You know, I love it when you get a call like that. Because next time someone says, well, nobody's cooking in America anymore. You just go like, well, yeah, she's making sourdough pancakes oh, and her own no, elderberry syrup. Oh, no, the people who syrup. call in, yeah. they're serious. Yeah. I'm Christopher Kimball, and you're listening to Milk Street Radio. Up next, my interview with Mary Giuliani, caterer to the stars and author of Tiny Hot Dogs, a Memoir and Small Bites. That's right after the break. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. You know, wonderful pistachios have become my go-to snack. Now, I could list all the health benefits. They're a good source of protein, fiber, and unsaturated fats, but... For me, flavor comes first, and that's why it's pistachios, not peanuts, in our household. 
Wonderful pistachios come in a variety of flavors and sizes, including sea salt and vinegar, chili roasted, and smoked barbecue. Check out wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more. That's wonderfulpistachios.com. This is Most Day Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Today, it's my interview with Mary Giuliani. She's the founder of Mary Giuliani Catering and Events and also the author of Tiny Hot Dogs, a Memoir in Small Bites. Mary, welcome to Milk Street. Thank you, Christopher. I'm so happy to be here. So you were, you were uh, admittedly a piece of work growing up. So you, 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 what you talk about you wanted to be Jewish. Yes. Well, we were so Italian. We couldn't have been more Italian if we tried. And it was my parents, my sister, and my grandparents. You know, we were the kind of Italians that cooked all day on Saturday for Sunday dinner. But I grew up in a predominantly Jewish neighborhood. So all I really wanted to be was like my friends. I wanted to be Jewish. So yes, I went to Hebrew school electively. I gave myself my very own um, bat mitzvah in my house by myself. (laughs) (laughs) And I applied to the Shabbos Goy program to push the elevators for the Orthodox Jews at the hospital on Saturdays. (laughs) Nice. Um, Your mother is also interesting. Um, She she had lots of advice for you. Uh, Stay safe. Don't be adventurous like the Kennedys, which I think is one of the strangest (laughs) things. Uh, Be a wife in public and a girlfriend in the bedroom. And then she did a dance for you. Yes. Um, I was, it was the night of my wedding, um, or the night before my wedding. She was actually ironing my veil in the kitchen. And I said, so, Mom, you know, you and Dad at this point have been married for about 40-something years. I said, um, you know, what, any advice for me the night before I get married? And she said, oh, yes, Mary. And she put the iron down. She came in front of the ironing board and said, always be a lady in public, but a girlfriend in the bedroom and do a little dance. And she started to sing Tina Turner's Private Dancer for me, (laughs) grabbed her knees, a little choreographed routine, and then said, I sometimes do this for your dad. And um, I don't know if I needed to necessarily know that that or see it. (laughs) But... But yeah, she's she's a character and she she was the big cook in our family and so everything I learned from life, love, sex, drugs, rock and roll, whatever it was, was from my mother while she was cooking. And in the book, yeah, like you saw, there's a lot of funny things like put your socks and your panties on and which is advice that you even admitted in your book you didn't quite understand. Not at all. We I called her um because I had found a mouse in my first apartment and I was <laughs> scared to go to bed with it on the loose. I couldn't trap it or anything. And then she, without skipping a beat, she just said, oh, Mary, just put your socks and your panties on and you'll be fine. Again, um... (laughs) Thanks, Mom. Yeah, thanks, Mom. So, um, a lot of, um... Good life advice. mm, Yeah, yeah, I guess so. (laughs) Uh, So, Captain and Tennille figured into your life, uh, and also your sort of love letters based on Captain and Tennille and the Turtles. Yes. I, um, we, Ryan and I, when my, my husband and I, when we first moved to New York, we took a walk down to a street fair and they were selling little tiny turtles, which are totally illegal now or were then. I don't know. And we named them the Captain and Tennille. And uh, we, we came up with this whole life of who they were. And they were 70s stars and they ate fondue and raclette and drank Dubonnet and my husband and I would leave each other notes. I would leave, I would be Tennille leaving the captain notes and vice versa. And their love grew. Um, in our notes, they traveled to Mount Airy Lodge. They um, were, were learning. <laughs> they were learning Italian. They 
<laughs> they thought about being um, a mother, but concluded that Tennille was far too lazy to mother. And um, and uh, then one day, 10 years later, and this is very true, they had swam harmoniously side by side. Then the captain ate Tennille, killed her. Um, <laughs> and we'd gone to bed and came up, and it was like a murder scene. And it was horrible. I'm not going to spare you the details, but it wasn't pretty for poor Tennille. And then this love story became this mystery for us. Like, what, after 10 years, made him crack? You know, was it too many muskrat loves, she sang, or we weren't, we weren't sure. <laughs> that would do it, by the way. I think so. I think that's ended up what it was. But, um, yeah, and then we started the new narrative. He took on a new young girlfriend and got a boat called Recovery. So he became this, he became loved to now a criminal, and now he still floats around by himself in, in the tank. Um, but I don't have the same love for him now because he's a murderer. <laughs> yeah, it's it's hard to love someone who killed his yeah. wife turtle. Uh, yeah. So you always wanted to be an actress, and obviously through your book you are because everything seems larger than life. But you you get into catering. So w- explain to me the catering business. It just yeah. sounds like the world's worst business in terms of disasters, managing people, food, anything can go wrong. How do you make a success of being a caterer? Yeah, it's it's controlled chaos. It's learning to how to control chaos. And um, yeah, I, I had I had no true catering aspirations. I graduated Georgetown with an English major. Came to the city. Was going to be a writer. I was going to be the next Gilda Radner. I was going to Saturday Night Live, and took a job in this catering company to just pay the bills. And I was there for all of a month before I realized that oh, no, this is actually what I want to be when I grow up. Because there's an element of theatrics in catering. Every every party's different. You have the ability to create environments. So what I think makes a, a successful catering company is absolute number one is organization. You have to be creative. You have to keep people entertained, especially my clients are mostly in the art, fashion, entertainment world. So um, you want to always make sure that they, they're seeing something new. <laughs> So, so when you say something new, give me an example of a theme or a way of creating a catered event that was different for people. Yeah. Well, I, I always like simple and special. I will just serve pigs in a blanket and martinis sometimes if you come over to my house. and <laughs> P- Pigs in a blanket being your main theme in food. Being the main yeah. food and with a whole bunch of assorted toppings and things you wouldn't think to put on that. You know, so I like to test the boundaries in in catering because I feel like you could make up all the rules, and that's what I like. You go to a restaurant, you know what you're going to get. You're going to order a first course, an entree, and a dessert. With catering, you could serve it inside. You could serve it outside. You could serve it in a bathtub. Like, there's just – you can play around with the fantasy of food and beverage experiencing it in a different way. Um, Alec Baldwin, you were thrilled. He came into the kitchen and uh, it was a little disappointing. (laughs) Well, I I think I I, I talk about in the book that my hero is Steve Martin's character in the film The Jerk, Navin Johnson, who was delusionally optimistic. And so everything I do, there's a level of delusional optimism. And I think that's also propelled me in my career big time. So I was doing a party in the Hamptons and Alec Baldwin was there. And this was... um, I joke in the book, but it's true. It was pre-Hilaria. This was like fat Alec Baldwin. Like I liked fat Alec Baldwin, who was like a little messy and (laughs) and a little crazy. Um, And this was that time. And 
it, this was just a, a party that every single name you knew was in the other room. And no one comes into the kitchen. You're just the caterer. You don't even, I don't even often sometimes see the dining room. I'm in some of the places we cater. Wait, wait, wait. So as a caterer, sometimes all you see is the kitchen. You're never allowed into the rest of the house. Some, it de- yes. There are clients that I have that have kitchens behind their kitchens. That blew my mind. Well, you mean a catering kitchen. A catering kitchen right. behind a show kitchen. It's it's just wild. It's just wild. So um, this was one of those. And Alec Baldwin was there. And he came in to the kitchen, which no one was coming into the kitchen other than the waitstaff to pick up the food. And he said, you know, who's in charge? And I just, whoa, it was those blue eyes. And my Alec was there. And right. he was my crush. And he came in and, and said, what's for dinner tonight? And I was like, do you like Italian? Ha ha. And we were serving Italian. But um, <laughs> and then he came in like he had a, an important and we were, I felt like we were sort of hitting it off. And then he left and then he came back in again. And by the third time he came in, I had convinced myself that we had this romance going on and I was going to leave my worldly <laughs> life behind my wonderful husband and my dog Stanley at the time. And I was going to run off with Alec Baldwin. And he came back the third time and said, can I ask you a question? And I was just ready. That was the I moment. was ready. Yeah. And I yes, Alec. And he said, can you get me a Diet Coke? There's none available at the bar. And um, my captain said I poured the saddest Diet Coke he'd ever seen and <laughs> handed it to him. And with that, the romance was over. And um, I got to go home and back to my life, thankfully. <laughs> well, this is the why you like the jerk, because he's just, he, he's optimistic for no good reason. Oh, everything. Right? He sees his name in the phone book, and, and <laughs> things are going to start happening for me now. And I really do approach each day like that. My business partner just rolls her eyes at me. But um, it's a fun way to go through life, and it, it's worked for me. So thank you, Naven Johnson. <laughs> um. Everyone asks you this question, but I just have to ask, which is, give, give, me, give me two things. A worst case scenario, that is the worst experience you've had, and then maybe one of the best. Okay. Um, worst case scenario was one time a wedding cake didn't show up, and that's terrifying. And wait, 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 wait. So the wedding cake didn't show up on the day of the wedding? On the day of the wedding. And why didn't it show up? It just, the, the baker had the wrong date on his calendar. Oh. And so that was traumatic. But thankfully, the bride and groom were amazingly kind. And we had to actually go to, dare I say it, a Wegmans and get a cake and try to make it pretty. (laughs) Um, (laughs) um, And that they took it with such ease. I was like, you know what? These these folks are going to be married for a while, I think. Yeah, this marriage is going to last. I think this is going to last. And I don't know the best for me, and this is going to sound so cliche, but like, Whenever at the end, when you could look out and you see you've you've made someone happy by the food or drink you serve them or, you know, how you fluff the pillows or put the table outside instead of inside. Um, I don't know. That's that's kind of the why you do it. It's that's the good stuff. Since you are in the catering business, if you went to a catered party, how would you look at the party from your perspective? It's, it's like, how does a restaurateur yep. view walking into somebody else's restaurant? What, what do you look for? Christopher, it's funny. I, I I love being a guest because I'm always, I'm so often not. So, you know, it's funny. People are always like, what do you think of the cake? What do you think of the, of the, the filet? And I'm like, I'm just so happy. I'm not working. <laughs> <Doing> <laughs> but, <it. laughs> um, you know, you look for the things. Like, I always think um, 
an entrance and, a, and an exit. Those are your big, it's like theater, you know, you catch them in the beginning, you make sure something nice happens in the middle, and hopefully they leave wanting more. So I look for that when I'm when I'm not doing the party, you know, how was I how are we greeted? Are the drinks ready? You know, but but I'm the easiest. I'm I'm so easy. I just love being invited anywhere. I think that's true of everyone in this business because we rarely get invited anywhere. So when we are, no, we just it, enjoy you become it. it becomes lonely because people right. don't want to have you. They're scared. Right. They're like, well, Christopher's coming over tonight. What could I possibly make him? So I always when I'm invited somewhere, I'm like, honestly, pizza Red wine, pajamas. Like, I'm good. Like, do and not tiny hot fuss. dogs. Yeah. Tiny hot dogs. That's all. <laughs> it's all you need to make Mary. It's all you need. It's all you need. <laughs> Mary, thank you so much uh, for being on Milk Street. Thank you so much. This was so much fun. And um, anytime you'd like a plate of hot dogs, I'm your girl. <laughs> I'll take you up on it. <laughs> That was Mary Giuliani. Her new book is called Tiny Hot Dogs, A Memoir in Small Bites. Giuliani has catered her share of weddings, and doing research for this interview, it came across endless catering disaster stories. A meat-filled lasagna being sold to vegetarian guests as meatless, the waitstaff eating wedding cake in the kitchen before the bride was served, and wedding guests getting no dinner at all. There are times in life when we are at our worst, getting married, divorced, fired, sick, or even dying. Professions that cater to folks at these key moments, wedding planners, caterers, nurses, psychiatrists, and members of the clergy, often bear the brunt of our misery. So for all of you who help us through our very worst moments, a heartfelt thank you from the rest of us, even if you do eat the wedding cake before the bride. It's time to chat with editorial director J.M. Hirsch about this week's recipe, soup au pistou. J.M., how are you? I'm doing great. Uh, you spent some time in Marseille. Uh, with some luck, uh, it was sort of hard to find a lot of recipes it we was. want to bring back here. But yes. there was one in particular, soup au pistou, yes. which is essentially a minestrone, yep. uh, but not really with pesto on it, with something like pesto. So let's start with the soup. Is it just a bean soup with veggies? It is. And, you know, I've got to tell you, when I went to learn this dish, I was not ready to be impressed because, like you say, it's just a vegetable bean soup, uh, and they add a little bit of pasta to it, although that's more to give it body and to thicken it than to actually add noodles to it. But it's what they do after they've made the soup that really got my attention. And, And as you know, I went to Genoa to learn how to make true Italian pesto, and I didn't realize that the south of France has its own version of this, which, of course, they call pistou. And they add that to the top of this very simple vegetable and bean soup. And I was expecting to not be very impressed by it because you figure, well, that's going to water down all the flavor of that beautiful pesto. Because as we know, in Italy, it's, uh, it's a construction. You know, they add very precise amounts of ingredients in a specific order so that each ingredient is treated in a particular way to get the end result. And of course, that pesto is then tossed with pasta. And, and it's not diluted very much, so it's a very careful construction of flavor. Here, they take a very different approach, even though in the south of France, they use exactly the same ingredients. They go big on the garlic. I mean, so much so that when I tried the pisto by itself, it burned my tongue. I mean, that's a lot of garlic, and I <laughs> like garlic. <laughs> but they, they use all the same ingredients, very different proportions, and they're not at all careful about how they put them together. They just throw them in a mortar and pestle, and they, they bash it until it's a coarse paste, And when the soup has finished simmering, they ladle that into each bowl of soup and you mix it in. 
And so what was this almost inedible paste of garlic and basil suddenly infuses all the broth, infuses the vegetables, and you get these amazing aromas coming out of each bowl. And then it suddenly made sense that you need a stronger pesto in order to flavor a bowl of soup. And that's a different requirement than tossing with a bowl of pasta. So the takeaway, I guess, is how intense the sauce is depends entirely on how it's going to be used. Exactly. Not, not a brilliant concept, <laughs> but true. Well, it's very often I've tasted a sauce called, this is too salty or this is too strong. Right. But then you use it like adding to a super stew, and right. it, it's fine. Right. You know, it depends on the, the intent. What are you going to do with it? What is it supposed to be flavoring? And flavoring pasta is going to be much different than flavoring a bowl of soup. So we don't use a mortar and pestle here. We use a food processor. Any, any other changes we made? Back no, here you know Street? what? It was such a simple recipe. It was wonderful for Milk Street because, you know, it's just we start with dried beans and, and we cook them up with some vegetables. The only thing we really did differently was instead of dumping all the vegetables in at once, we add them in, in an order so that the more tender vegetables go in last and don't get overcooked. And other than that, it's a very straightforward vegetable and bean soup that we then top with this amazing pisto. JM, thank you very much. I guess your trip to Marseille paid for itself. It did indeed. <laughs> thank <laughs> you. You told me anyway. <laughs> you can find this recipe for soup au pisto at 177milkstreet.com. This is Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Coming up, Adam Gopnik shares a history lesson about coffee. We'll be right back. This is Christopher Kimball. You may have heard that we just started running international culinary tours. And one trip I am particularly excited about is Istanbul, which is based in part on my recent visit. Along with our partners at Culinary Backstreet's, we put together an itinerary that goes way beyond the Grand Bazaar. This May, we'll visit local neighborhood markets, take a sail up the Bosporus, and harvest vegetables from farms in the city's ancient moats. You'll sample Turkish cheeses, flatbreads, pistachios, pomegranate molasses, and olive oil. And since this is, in fact, a Milk Street trip, you'll use those ingredients in hands-on cooking classes with local families and chefs. There are just three spots left on our May trip, so visit 177milkstreet.com slash tours. That's 177milkstreet.com slash tours to claim your spot. Plus, listeners to our radio show save 5% with code Istanbul. I'm Christopher Kimball, and you're listening to Milk Street Radio. Right now, it's time for this week's cooking tip. We recently got a call from Josh from Massachusetts, who was asking about starch and pasta water and how to use it. Well, in Italy, cooks use this water to help thicken pasta sauces. But at Milk Street, we wondered if we could come up with a substitute, and here's why. Most Americans use too much water for boiling pasta, or they use gluten-free pastas. In both cases, you're not going to have much starch in the water. So here's the substitute. Add half a teaspoon of cornstarch and a quarter teaspoon of kosher salt to one cup of water. Make sure to bring that mixture to a boil. That will gelatinize the starch in the water, or you can microwave it and stir it well. To use, undercook your pasta by about two minutes or so. Add your sauce to your skillet, then add some of this starchy water to the mix as the sauce and pasta cook down together. The sauce will cling to the pasta and infuse it with flavor. For more culinary inspiration, visit us at 177milkstreet.com.
Up next, it's Adam Gopnik, who's never afraid to get poetic about food. Adam, how are you? I am very well, Christopher. How are you? I'm well, and I'm ready for a word of wisdom. Uh, Did you have a cup of coffee this morning? I had a large cup of coffee, yes. I have become more and more interested. As you know, coffee is one of my passions in life. My basic belief is that between coffee and wine lies our lives, that we cannot make our lives without coffee and wine. But I've just finished my new book, and it's a book I set out to write in defense of and an explanation of liberalism. Now, by liberalism, I don't mean the politics of the Democratic Party or of one side or another. I mean that broad sense of liberalism that history gives us that includes everybody who's committed to open and democratic institutions. And one of the most fascinating things I discovered in the course of researching this book and writing it is the absolutely central role of coffee and the coffee house and the coffee shop and the cafe to the growth of liberal civilization. Hmm. It's a subject that I discovered had been taken up by a great German sociologist named Jürgen Habermas. And Habermas's idea was that what made the Enlightenment happen, the groundwork for the French and the American revolutions, was all laid in the coffee houses of the 18th century. And if you think about it, it makes sense. Those were the first places, among the first places, where people could go. Uh, They weren't clubs. You didn't have to win admission. They weren't a clan defined, nor were they terribly expensive. They Mm. weren't like the restaurants or eating houses of the period where it cost you something to get something. No, for the price of a coffee, you could sit in a public space and talk to whomever you pleased about whatever you wanted. Not only that, but the simple exercise, the muscle of proximity that was being exercised in those places taught people how to live alongside, how to talk alongside, how to converse with fundamentally different kinds of people. And the coffee house in that way is the foundation, so many sociologists argue, for the invention, the existence, the persistence, the health of liberal democracy. Now, when the sociologists are writing about it, and this is the part that I think that interests food people like you and me, Christopher, they tend to treat coffee very neutrally, as though it happened to be coffee that brought all of these many kinds together in this unplanned, open, and commonplace conversation. But if you think about it further, you'll see that coffee itself is absolutely vital to the story that I'm telling now. Because what is the distinguishing feature, or features, one might say, of coffee? It's, first of all, a stimulant, right? It's not a depressive drug. It's something that we drink in order to be more alert, more avid, more ready for conversation. It's not alcohol. It's not something that makes us sloppier and more distraught or angrier and more ready for rage. And remember, alcohol, in the form of beer particularly, was the standard beverage of Western civilization, water being too dangerous to drink. So having coffee in a coffee house was not only a way of encouraging conversation among very different kinds, it was also a way of weaning the world off booze. It was a way in which we moved from an alcohol civilization towards a caffeinated one. And you can't walk by a coffee bar in New York without seeing the standard familiar panorama now of 50, 20-somethings banging away on their computers elbow to elbow. You did say in your first book, or one of your first books that you, I guess, wrote in when you were in Paris in the 90s, you said when you go out to dinner, you go through a period of drinking wine, and then at the end of the meal, you have an espresso to bring you back full circle to the reality. And so 
you do agree that alcohol and coffee actually are sort of bedfellows. I think they are. Yes, and I did write that. Um, alcohol decreases our vision, so to speak. It makes us focus much more on the one person across the table from us. I'm sure you've had the experience where when you walk into a restaurant, it seems intolerably noisy and distracting. Then you have your first glass of wine, and suddenly your ability to be with your companion and focus on your companion becomes much more intense. What fascinates me and what I didn't fully understand or indeed understand at all when I wrote in that book, The Table Comes First, uh, about the play of alcohol and coffee is how much coffee alone and serving coffee alone in places where you didn't typically drink alcohol at all, how fundamental that was to remaking what we might call conversational civilization, uh, places where people could meet and converse and move on. And you know the other very peculiar thing about that, which I've been brooding on, uh, and not enough of the scholars I think have pointed out, and it's something, again, that's obvious in every coffee bar and every coffee and espresso chain that we patronize now, and that's that that's a very good business to be in. You'd think it wouldn't be a good business, right? All you're doing is selling coffee and renting space. But in exchange for the rather limited um, monies in that you get, you have very limited labor costs, you have very limited and controllable ingredients costs, and you have enormous consumer loyalty. The same people come over and over to the same coffee house. It's why we become exasperated because we can't find a seat and a place to put our computer. It turns out that that model of business, of selling coffee for a small price to extremely loyal customers, is a very good business model. So coffee transformed our civilization in terms of encouraging conversation and also as a way of commodifying space. I have just one question, which is don't fascists drink coffee? I am willing to say two things are generally true. You find very few fascists in jazz clubs and coffee bars. Okay. The Great Enlightenment started out in coffee houses and continues to this day. Adam Gopnik, thank you very much. Thank you, Chris. That was Adam Gopnik, staff writer for The New Yorker. That's it for this week's show. If you tuned in too late or want to binge listen every episode, you can download Milk Street Radio on your favorite podcast app. To learn more about Milk Street, please go to 177milkstreet.com. You can find each week's recipe, watch our TV show, or order our latest cookbook, Milk Street Tuesday Nights. We'll be back next week with more food stories, and thanks, of course, for listening. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with WGBH. Executive producer, Melissa Baldino. Senior audio editor, Melissa Allison. Producer, Annie Sinsabaugh. Associate producer, Jackie Nowak. Production assistant, Stephanie Cohn. And production help from Debbie Paddock. Senior audio engineer, Douglas Sugertz. Additional editing from Vicki Merrick, Sydney Lewis, and Haley Fager and audio mixing from Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Theme music by Tubeup Crew. Additional music by George Brendel Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX. Mm-hmm.